invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel, which can be found on page 295. The Bible's in the pews. Is that right, Dave? I don't have it. Sorry, 262, sorry. 262, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll read the entire chapter. And as you get there, I want to just bring up something that Dr. Red said a week ago, I think is worth repeating again. He said that as we read the scriptures, as we read stories like this, we can't forget that these are real people that lived in real time and dealt with real issues. These are not fairy tales. These are not wives' tales, but these are real people. And God has allowed his people to be able to learn from past patriarchs in scripture. And for us, as we come to the text, we want to keep that in mind that the almighty God thought it necessary for us under the inspiration of the spirit to learn from those who've come before us. So keep that in mind as we uh, read this text and engage with this, with this really challenging text. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Mennonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her home, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. As, as, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men in the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David, some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. 
And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messengers, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when this mourning was over, he sent, he, he, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did, David had done, displeased the Lord. Let us pray. All of scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for teaching, reproof, or correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that this hour that you would be our teacher, that you would make us slow to judge, and that we would think your thoughts after you. Father, this text is difficult, it's challenging, and it's piercing in certain ways. And so we ask that you would give us understanding. Help us to discern these things, that we, your people, would live to the glory that you have called us to live in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Admittedly, I will tell you this week, um, as I was preparing for this message, I was so close to texting Dave, saying, hey, can you just preach this text instead of myself? Because when you read the passage, it's, it's challenging, it's difficult. Mainly because if you're a Christian and you've, you know, you've read the Bible a few times, you know that David is someone that we as Christians look up to, right? He's done the things the right way. The Bible even calls him a man after God's own heart. So when we read this text in light of what we know about David, it's challenging. Because how could someone that knows God completely, that trusts God, that put his faith in God, could do something this difficult? So as I thought about that this week and as I was praying, I think the Lord convicted me and said, Mono, if someone wrote down your events, your life events, and they were to read it, what would they think of you? I think with that in our minds and our hearts, uh, as we come to this passage, our, our goal is to learn from David's life, and maybe in certain ways we'll also learn about ourselves and how even a forgiven sinner is capable of any, at any moment doing any sin. It is true, you may come to Christ. You may be growing in spiritual maturity. You actually may see the fruit of God's work in your lives. But if sin goes unchecked, if sin goes unconfessed, then we are all capable of all matters of dysfunction. So in this passage, I think there's, there's three things that we can learn. Typical Presbyterian sermon. There are three things that we can learn 
I think, from this story. The first of which is that I believe in the first five verses we can see that unconfessed sin gives life to perverted passions. Unconfessed sin gives life to perverted passions. In verse 1, we see that the kingdom of Israel was heading into battle, but the king was not going with them. And there's no sin in this. David is allowed to stay back. But when you think about the history of Israel and the character of David, this story seems, it starts off a bit unusual. If you remember back early in 1 Samuel, when the people of Israel went to God and they wanted a king like the other nations, they wanted a king that would lead them into battle. If you know the story of David, we know David, while Saul was uh, shining his, uh, his armor and his swords, David, the young boy, the shepherd, was running into the field to defeat the Philistine Goliath. So to see the kingdom of Israel going into battle without this king seems a bit unusual. What was David doing? Perhaps David was just looking out and he was looking at all that God had given him. Remember, he was a shepherd. The Lord had blessed him tremendously. And so he goes out to his roof and he looks and he sees all the world and he sees the world maybe for his taking. So he takes time away from war. He takes time away from leadership and he takes leisure. He sees a role for the taking. In verse, verse 2, sees that he sees a woman. Verse 2 tells us that this woman was very beautiful. Why does the author tell us that? I don't think it's to remind us that David was mesmerized by her good looks, but I think he wants us to know that this was no love affair. David was not drunk with love, but he was liquored with lust. You see, because we know what happens when you love someone, right? When you love someone, I'm talking to the married couples, when you love someone, there's a certain way that they court you, right? What was their pickup line? What were they wearing that day? What did they say to you? What, what was the music that was playing in the background? Some of you, if we think about our spouses, we probably would say we didn't even like them at first. But, but, but imagine you were married to someone else and this person pursued you, they pressured you, maybe even they used their influence, their authority as this force to getting to be with you. How would that make you feel? See, David's sin here is, 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 is hidden, but David's sin is a little obvious. It's un, it, his unconfessed sin is leading him to covetedness. Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife. See, the sin, we typically jump to the sin of the act, but this is saying that it really begins before then. The sin is covetedness. This is the desire, the appetite, the craving for what belongs to someone else. David's, David covers the house of Uriah by lusting after his wife. In verse 4, we, we see that he sent for messengers. He inquired. He took her. He lay with her. He sent her away, and he misused his power. There was no constraint. There was no conversation. There's no persuasion. There's no justification. As I was doing my research this week, you know, I was reading different commentators to see what they said about this incident, and believe it or not, it's 50-50. Some say it was Bathsheba's fault, you know, she shouldn't have been bathing out in the public. Some say, well, it's not her fault. It's partly her fault, but not fully. We, we want to ask the question, right, was it consensual? You know, or was it something far worse? The text doesn't make it clear. So some people think that maybe it is Bathsheba's fault because, you know what, she shouldn't have been bathing. But 
we have to think about it. Like, during this time, they did not have a master ensuite like in Bethesda, Maryland. Right? So her, her bathing was completely consistent with the culture at the time. And besides the fact, we don't get to blame others for our sins. We want so badly to go out on the, on the rooftop of our own lives and to serve it and to find others that we can place blame on. Is that what Jesus did when he was tempted? The Gospel of Matthew makes it, he paints the picture very clearly that Satan, he tempted, he tested Jesus. He said, turn these stones to bread. He said, he said you know what, just throw yourself off the cliff and the angels will come get you. See, Satan's goal was to tempt Jesus to abuse and misuse his power for selfish gain and for prideful ego. But Jesus stood on kingdom business and he rejected the enemy's trap altogether. Jesus didn't say, well, you know what? The reason why I sinned, Father, is because Satan's offer was so enticing. It was so pleasurable in the moment. Jesus says, be gone, Satan. He says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We have to remember as Christians that, that, the Satan, that Satan is a lion who is seeking to devour. What does he tell Peter? He says, Satan desires to sift you. He desires to sift you. Jesus says, but I pray for you. Why? That your faith may not fail. So David does not repent. David does the deed. And in verse 5, David had got what he wanted, but we find that David got probably more than he wanted. Verse 5 says that I'm pregnant. The situation isn't bad enough. Now a life has been added to this complicated transaction. David, who thought he was remaining in Jerusalem and he was avoiding the war, actually finds himself crossing enemy lines between Uriah and Bathsheba. He has caused war in his own kingdom. I can't move on past verse 5 because it says I am pregnant. And, and if we move too quickly, we will actually end up doing the same thing that David did. David did his deed and then he just went on to the next thing. But we have to think about the woman. Imagine how she felt. Imagine the emotional abuse in this moment of her life. As she waited for her husband to return, she was now expecting the king's child. What would she say to him? How would her husband Uriah respond to this news? Was her marriage going to be over? Was the family going to reject her? Let me say this. I was, let me say this. If you experience anything like this, let me just remind you that God sees you. God sees you. He loves you deeply and completely. God does not condone any abuse like this. And we know this from the text because the last verse says that, even for David, that the last verse says that God saw everything David did and was displeased. You, no matter what happened, you are precious in the eyes of God. You are honored. And as Isaiah says, he says that the Lord God, he loves you. David misused his leadership position. He was supposed to rule with righteousness, but he was ruined. He's supposed to rule with faithfulness, but he ruled with fear. And instead of ruling with love, this was lust. So what we see in this first unconfessed sin that it gives life to perverted passions, but we also see that, that sin, it starts off small. It starts off innocent. It starts off flirtatious, discreet. 
But as we let, allow it to sit and go unconfessed, it begins to grow, it begins to increase. And so unconfessed then first, it perverts our passions, but secondly, unconfessed sin, it gives life to anxious activity. Unconfessed sin gives life to anxious activity. Look at David's actions. He sent for Joab. He sent for Uriah. Uriah came. David investigated. He sent Uriah to his wife. He's a mess. David is full with anxiety, trying to manipulate the moves because he's in a place where he knows he has sinned and he has not brought that before the Lord. He's anxious. Philippians 4, 6, 7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. David's request could have been, Lord, forgive me for I've sinned against you in the house of Uriah. I've sinned against Bathsheba. Transform my perverted passions to passions that you delight in. This is also a prayer that we can pray. That when we sin, we should not dive deeper into waters that are unknown or, or sinful waters, but we should actually turn to the Lord in confidence, knowing that the Lord, that with the Lord there is forgiveness. So the psalmist says in 130, he says that if you, Lord, count sins, who could actually stand? No one. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So David does not repent. He, he, he sidesteps repentance and he seeks concealment. The evidence of David's dark sin is beginning to come to light and he decides to try to keep the secret through concealing the sin. Did you, real, did you think about this? Like it's actually, it's easier to think of a lie and to tell a lie, but it's much harder to actually conceal the lie. It's, harder, it's hard to keep lies concealed. It takes a tremendous amount of work and effort to keep a lie going because lies just need more lies. So David has a master plan to get Uriah to be with his wife. And so we see in verse six, he sends out, sends for Uriah, Uriah comes, he asks him to go home. Uriah is summoned, David gives him the royal welcome and he, he, he asks uh, the, him these passive questions. Joab sent to David, when Uriah came, he asked him how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. See, even in these questions, David tries to manipulate the conversation to what he really wants. Where I'm from, we just call this uh, small talk treatment. You know, you watch the mafia movies like, hey, how's your family? You know, how's the kids? Hey, where's my money? You know, that, that's what he does. He's like, hey, how's Joab? How's, how's the guys doing? How's the war? Hey, hey, go home and be with your wife. It's like, what? Yeah, just, just go home and be with your wife. He isn't really concerned about the health of Uriah, which is, I think is a foreshadowing of how little he cares of his life. But deep down beneath the king's armor, the author here allows us to see David's heart in this matter. Verse 8 says, go be with your wife. He sends him off with a gift. This is not a gift of love. This is a bribe laundered by lust and deceit. And so the sin here is, is subtle. The, the sin that David is committing here is, is subtle. He says to go drink and enjoy and be with your wife. See, this sin here is called manipulation. 
And at the core of manipulation is, is, is just lying. Some of you say, well, well Manoa, he, he, didn't, he didn't lie. He just told him to go home and be with his wife. No, no, he, he's lying. Because what does it mean to lie? Lying is when someone speaks falsely with the purpose of deception. Or in other words, a liar is someone who manipulates someone else into thinking or behaving a certain way. John 8, says that Satan is the father of lies. And in a real sense, we might call him the master of manipulation. So in a certain way, we, like David, when we manipulate others and take advantage of them, we are not behaving like children of God, but we are behaving like children of darkness and wrath. Lying by manipulation is wicked. It is ungodly, and it is entirely selfish. Some of us think about lies. We think about the... We, we give them colors. We say the white lies or, you know, or the, the minor sin. But, but even when we lie in order to protect others, it's still utterly selfish. Truth is that we don't get to play God in other people's lives. And unconfessed sin, it drives us to anxiety, which is another form of fear. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trusting God that God will be able to get me out of the situation. And I end up taking my life into my own hands. So verse 8, David says, go home. Uriah says, no thanks. David's now confused. He's he's confused. Verse 11, he says, he asked him the question. Oh, sorry, verse Sorry, verse 10, it says, when they told David he did not go, Uriah, you did not go to your house. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? David is confused. See, David is the king, which means that when David speaks, things just happen. He's the king who's always in control. He's always calm, cool, and collective. And so he doesn't understand why, why Uriah would not listen to his command. But you see, David did not understand that he might be able to control the kingdom by his hand, but he cannot control the character of Uriah. Uriah says, I I, I can't go home. He gives him the three pillars of biblical society, God, family, and country, right? God, family, country. God, the ark, family is Toab, service, and the country is Israel. He says, I can't in good conscience enjoy comfort when my comrades are risking their lives in the elements of war. See, we have to understand that for the Israelites, the ark, as he says, the ark was the manifestation of the Lord himself. The ark was where the people would come and commune with God. The ark of the Lord would be taken into battle, and they would ask the Lord for discernment in the midst of war conquest. And Uriah says that I am not on vacation. (laughs) This non-Israelite, Uriah the Hittite, shows himself to be a man who's more faithful to the ways of the Lord than God's anointed king. How ironic is this that Uriah will avoid knowing his wife while war continues, and David covets another man's wife while this man is fighting his war. If your mind is like mine, you probably thought, did did, did Uriah know? The Hebrew expression is me or die. Who knows? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But you would think that this faithful response from 
Uriah would cause the king, cause David to look back in his life and think about how God has brought him from a mighty long way. The Lord has been faithful to David. He has gotten him out of trouble. And even David himself can maybe think back to when he has sought the Lord's face and sought forgiveness. One incident in, in, in David's life is in 1 Samuel chapter 30, right after David and his men had uh, returned from fighting a war, um, they get back home and their family, all of their things, the soldier's family, everything had been captured and had been taken. And in this difficult time in his life, he did not just take action. David did not respond. Even in this, this moment of fear, he gets back home, nothing's there. The text says that he inquired of the Lord. He did not take counsel with himself, but he sought discernment and wisdom from above. This should be for us too. We face situations that we've gotten ourselves in. The, the, the text is telling us, do not try to solve your problems. Second Chronicle puts it a little bit better than me. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. David's desperate. He's reaching, he's grabbing for more lies. He's grabbing for more tricks to make this lie fit in every attempt. But even David, in this point I will say, even David in this moment, he's actually not past the point of forgiveness. Even at this point, he still has the opportunity right now in the middle of this text, in the middle of my sermon, he has the opportunity to go before the Lord and confess and seek forgiveness now. As you live and as your soul lives, he says, I will not do this thing. This is Uriah. Then David said, Uriah, remain here another night. Tomorrow I will send you back. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by hand of Uriah. He said, put Uriah at the forefront. Uriah's third rejection, David said, enough is enough. David says, I'm the king. I don't have, I have all the power. I have all the authority. I don't have to bargain with a lowly soldier. I don't have to bargain with someone that's lower than me. He said, I'm not going to plead with him. I'm not going to confess Anything to this soldier? He said, I have all the power, which means I can control the narrative. I can control the situation. And though this plan isn't working how I want, um, I, I can issue the final blow. And so we see that unconfessed sin, it, it gives life to perverted passions. Unconfessed sin, it gives life to anxious activity, but unconfessed sin, it demands death. I had to do alliteration. Unconfessed sin, it demands death. It takes Life. The, the last few verses, just the, it's the cup of death that's just spilled over the last part of the chapter. We see nothing but death. We see nothing but destruction from unconfessed sin. First, we see the death of Uriah. David commands Joab. He says to set Uriah where fighting is most difficult. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest Fighting, which makes sense. If you're in war and you get to your enemy and you're here, like the front of it would be the most difficult part. So David knew what he was doing. He said, put Uriah at the front and have everyone just draw back. 
to leave him all alone, to allow him to die by himself. David uses his military power to execute one of his own. This goes back to what we said earlier, manipulation. David wants Uriah gone. Since Uriah's not getting the hint, um, David orders the hit. He trusts, and, and who does he turn to in this moment? The, the same person he turned to earlier in the chapter. He turns to Joab, because Joab can get the job done. So there's death of Uriah, but also there's death of innocent casualties. In David's lust to cover his sins, his bloodthirst leadership, it leads to this mercenary treason. Not everyone sees what's going on. Not everyone is paying attention or really knows the sin that David is struggling with. Not even Joab knows because Joab actually tries to, tries to come up with a story that will conceal his issues. He tells, he tells them, he said, you know what, tell David that, if th- that because things didn't work out exactly how he planned, it's only because I was trying to do what you told me to do. But David's unbothered by this loss of life. There were casualties who were just bystanders because David's goal, David's mission was to get rid of Uriah and it was successful. It's hard to hear David's words in verse 22 uh, and 24. He says it. The archers, after the, after the messenger says the archers shot, verse 25, I'm sorry. David's words are really hard to hear. Listen again. David said to the messengers, after David had just heard that there were servants who died, here's what David says. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. In other words, David is saying, death, death happens. It's part of the business. We all were going to die one day, so you know what? Don't worry about it. Be encouraged. Take the city down. So we see death of Uriah, death of innocent casualties. There's another death. It's not as obvious, but I would say it's also death of Bathsheba. Death of Bathsheba, because this sin of adultery killed the personhood of Bathsheba. She suffered loss of integrity, a tragic, horrific experience that was not her fault. Loss of credibility, now her family. Maybe they would have their own stories of what she did, and they would have these jabs, these puns, or maybe they would gossip about what they heard of what she did. Not only that, the dysfunction continues. She, she lost her husband. And even with the king's child in her, verse, uh, in, her, in her stomach, she did not just move on. Verse 26 says that she, she lamented over her husband. It wasn't cancer that killed him. It wasn't a plague, but it was the king. I don't know if she knew that David did it or not, but just imagine her emotional grief. You know the story, then you know that her grief is really echoed more in chapter 12 when this same incident actually leads to her child, the death of her child in chapter 12. Death continues for Bathsheba, I would say. Her name is associated now forever with this incident. Imagine you did something. Imagine you committed a sin. Imagine you, imagine you were part of this, 
this event that took place, and every time someone mentions your name, is associated with this previous incident. Forever, she's known as the wife of Uriah, even into the New Testament. She's still known as the wife of Uriah. Could the death of Uriah been prevented? What's interesting is that when David sends Uriah back to war, Joab, I would say, had the same opportunity to show his character and honor that Uriah had. Remember, David commanded Uriah to go home, and Uriah, and, but he rejected. Joab is faced with a similar situation, is he not? Send Uriah to the grave. Joab does not flinch. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't inquire. Or does he push back against authority? Well, some will say, well, well Manoel, Joab is, he's subservient to David. Who is he to question the king? Um, if you know the story about Joab, if you know his personality, Joab in 2 Samuel chapter 3, there's a, there's a situation that happens when David had made plans to settle differences with an enemy. Without David's approval, without David's knowledge, Joab actually goes to that person. His name is Abner. I encourage you to read the story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 3. But he goes to this person, and Joab kills the person. Now, it wasn't in response to killing someone in the family, but, but David gets to the scene, and David does not respond how he did here. He doesn't say, the sword devours now one and now another. That's not what David says there. Here's what David said. David says, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of that man. See, David knew the contents of Joab's character. He knew that Joab was someone who probably wasn't quick to make peace. He probably would just respond without thinking. Maybe Joab was just down for whatever. What say you? What, what do you think others would say about you? Would others look at your character as someone who would just do whatever? Would you turn an eye knowing that there's evil taking place? Or maybe would you be willing to cheat and to steal as long as no one else is hurt? Or would you be willing to go to war? See, what we see in this story is that sin starts small and it has the power to grow into something formidable, but it grows. It doesn't grow like a flower, but sin grows more like weeds. Like, you don't have to be a gardener to know what, that weeds are a problem for fruitful cultivation because weeds spring up, but they end up destroying growth. They destroy good fruit. And not only that, if, if weeds stay long enough, if they aren't cut off, they're able to increase Diseases and infections. Infections. I think you get the picture. John Owen says it best. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Where's the hope? Where's the hope in all of this story? How, do, how does unconfessed sin affect us as individuals or our families or our church? I think the story is pretty clear that 
When we live our lives with unconfessed sin, it has the ability to ravage not only our lives, but the people and the lives around us. Romans 8.1 is right. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but our sin is not something that we can avoid the consequences of. Yes, we are not condemned, but our sin still has real implications, real life consequences. If, if David's story ended in, chap, in chapter 11, then there would be no hope. But, but David has a chapter 12 in his life. And in chapter 12, David is confronted with his sin and he is told what he has done is evil in the sight of the Lord. And here now David's response. Chapter 12, verse 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. I, I won't read you the full the full confession in Psalm 55, but I encourage you tonight, go home and read Psalm 55. You will see David's heart genuinely pouring out before the Lord. This is what we should do when we confront him with sin. David doesn't blame Bathsheba's beauty. He doesn't blame Uriah's incompetence or, or Joab's strict obedience to follow his commands. He doesn't even come up with an excuse, but he comes before God Almighty as like all of us should as a repentant sinner. The truth is that all of us have a chapter 11 in our own lives. We all have done things that we would not utter in public because if we did, they would highlight our sins and they would drive us to crawl up into a hole that we would be disgusted with ourselves, full of grief, embarrassed at our own dysfunction. But the hope and beauty is that God offers all of us a chapter 12. And it's not because we deserve God's grace, no, but God offers forgiveness because of his great love. Romans 5, Paul puts it this way. He says in Romans 5, for while we were still, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still, Still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you hear this message and you're not a Christian and you think, well, you know what, I'm not bad, as bad as that guy. I don't see why, I don't see how me living this life will really lead to death. Well, if that is you, let me tell you this, you will live, a, you, may, you may live a long physical life, but when you die, you will experience a spiritual death that is far worse than anything we've read tonight. See, Christ has died and suffered that you will not experience death, but you will be able to receive the gift of God. What is that? Eternal life in Christ Jesus. For the believers, God is saying that this is not a permission to sin. Though you have been rescued from the ultimate penalty of sin, we should not allow sin to go unconfessed. As we look at the life of David, we can see that sin that goes unconfessed, it has the ability to completely ravish our lives. Let us be reminded that it is never too late to repent. I'm going to end with the, the hymn from John, John um, the hymn from His Mercy is More, sorry, Newton, there we go. Here's what he said. He says, what love could remember the wrongs we have done, omniscient all-knowing, he counts not their sum, thrown in to the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins there are many, his mercy is more. 
What patience will wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that for you, we have sinned in every which way that is possible. Even after you have called us your own, given us purpose, given us a family, our mouths are filled, have been filled with your sweet word. We still desire the bitterness of the world. Give us a flavor of your glory. Help us to feast on righteousness, that our passions may be holy, that our actions may, may bear good fruit, and that we may live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That our lives will be characterized by faith, that those who trust in him, Christ Jesus, has promised eternal life, but also promised that nothing, no sin can separate us from the love of Christ. Let us be convinced and changed by this grace of assurance. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.